0: Amen. You may be seated. Take your, your Bible and turn with me. Join me in Matthew chapter 28, looking at verses 16 to 20. Now, for most of you, we have been in Matthew for a couple of years, but for some of you, We've been in Matthew for six years, and we bring our study of Matthew to a close today after six years of going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So it's a little bit surreal for me. Somebody said to me earlier in the week, what are we going to do after Matthew? And I was right in the midst of my sermon prep, and I said, you know, these last four verses, I think I might, I think I might need to cut them into two different sermons and he said, Oh, no, we're going we're gonna to stay in Matthew forever. And I said, No, no, I'm just joking. We can do it all in one. But I thought about it. I thought about it. During the month of August, we're going to take four weeks to go through the, through the book of Ruth, Old Testament. Seasons of refreshing, I expect to come by reflecting on the faithfulness of this godly woman in the Old Testament who wasn't even originally a Jew, wasn't from Israel, Moabitess, Moabite woman. And uh, we're going to look and, and be blessed at her and, and how the Lord took care of her and provided for her. And then in September, as the fall kicks off, I'm anticipating going through 1 Timothy. The pastoral epistles is my thought for the next two to three years. Um, I think we'll go 1 Timothy, then look at Titus, and then conclude with 2 Timothy. That's tentative for right now. I'm not 100% sold on that. But that's kind of where I suspect the Lord is taking us. And so if you want to start uh, buying books on Timothy, uh, by all means, start doing some background reading as we get ready to look at at, uh, what the Lord has to say to us from the pastoral epistles. But we're not there yet. We're still in Matthew. So let us turn our attention now to the Great Commission and what the Lord has for us this morning. If you would, please look with me, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. We will reread the scripture just one more time. And then, as is our custom, we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us with his spirit. And then we'll get to work. Now, Matthew 28, verse 16, it says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for giving us such abundant and undeserved grace, forgiving us of all our sins and imputing to us, bestowing upon us the righteousness of your Son, a righteousness we did not earn and do not deserve. But you give it to us so freely, Lord. Father, as we come to an end in this particular gospel for this season, would you please help us to understand just exactly how the good news of forgiveness in Christ is supposed to drive us. Lord, we ask that you'd open our eyes to see the priority that you have set before us, the priority of reaching the nations, reaching our neighbors, reaching our family members. Father, if there are any here today who are not entirely sure what it is that you are calling them to, I pray, God, that you would use this scripture and this message this morning to open our eyes to exactly what it is that you have for us. We pray, God, that all would leave here today knowing what it is you are calling them to do and resting in the presence of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So 15 years ago, when I was newly married, I came home from work one evening. It was one of the very first meals that my wife was cooking for me, that first home-cooked meal, one of those very first home-cooked meals, and I was excited to try some of her cooking. There was something just sort of quaint as a young man coming home and saying, hey, I am going to go home tonight, and I don't have to work or do anything or spend any money or any, my wife is going to have a meal ready for me. And so I came home, and there on the table was waiting for me a nice, warm just inviting chicken dish, but it had a peculiar smell. And I said, Shanti, uh, what kind of chicken is this? To which she then responded, it's honey Dijon chicken. Now, I do not care for honey Dijon. (laughs) I just can't do it so my wife and the other thing you need to know is that my wife was raised in a vegetarian household her parents were Buddhist and they had, they had moral qualms with eating animals and so this was her one of her first attempts at lear- learning to cook meat so it was a double whammy number one I don't like Honey Dijon to start with number two this is her first go at cooking meat so we sat down and I'd been raised by my mother the right way so it didn't matter how it tasted I asked for seconds but between you and me it was not that good. In fact, it was quite atrocious. It was actually disgusting. <laughs> so I labored through it. I'm eating it, and I'm asking for seconds, and my wife is watching me carefully the whole time, and she's not even eating hers at all. And I get through it, and I'm saying, Honey, why aren't you eating? She says, You know, I'm new to eating meat, and I'm, my stomach isn't quite ready for it, but I just wanted to sit and watch you and see what you thought of it. So she said, what did you think of it? And in that moment, I knew I had to give an answer, but I was prepared for it because I knew the question was coming, so I had thought up what would technically be a truthful yet clearly misleading statement. (laughs) So I said to her, you know, honey, that really hit a spot in me. (laughs) She said, that hit a spot in you. I said, oh, yeah, that hit a real spot inside of me. And she kind of laughed because she knew I was trying to skirt the issue. She said, so it was good? And I said, well, you know, yeah, it definitely got to me. (laughs) So then she said, how could I make it better? Now, I was fully prepared. At every question that she was going to ask me, I had pre-thought my responses because we had eaten largely in silence. Her watching me, me trying to smile while I'm eating this thing. And so I knew the question was coming and I had thought of my response and I was ready for it. But when she asked how could I make it better, that was a question I had not anticipated. So I did not have a pre-thought response ready to go. So the hesitation was clear as day. Which direction do I go here? Do I want to spend the rest of my life eating disgusting honey Dijon mustard chicken? Can I really live that way? Or, Or do I say to my wife... You could improve on this dish by never cooking it ever again. <laughs> We're newlyweds, so there's some grace there, but I don't know that there's that much grace there. You know, I mean, is this? I want to have a pleasant evening. I've got to get up and go back to work in the morning. She's got school, and, and so I'm hesitating between these two decisions. What do I tell her? Do I tell her, yes, don't ever cook it again, or do I tell her, you know, this was really bad? I mean how do I, you could improve it by doing this and this and this and some other things that really probably wouldn't have made it any better. I'm hesitating. Now, in that moment of hesitation, in that moment of indecision, I am doubting what the right course of action should be. I'm experiencing doubt. Now, my wife and I, she, and she knows I'm sharing this sermon illustration this morning. She's a fantastic cook. Let me put your minds at ease. Shanti is an amazing cook, and she is really, really gifted in the kitchen. But that first attempt, she will freely admit, will live forever in infamy. And so um, we, we have since moved beyond that. But when she asked me that question, I was struggling between two different options. That is what doubt is. You want to say the right thing, you want to do the right thing, but you're trying to think of the future ramifications of your decision. You're trying to anticipate how your choice will impact the person before you, and you're thinking about how your choice is going to ultimately impact you long term. That is exactly what is going on in the minds of these 11 disciples on this mountaintop. Look at what the text says. It says in verse 16, the 11 disciples, they go to Galilee as they had been instructed. James took us through these texts last week while I was away. They'd been, they, Jesus had an encounter with the ladies at the tomb. He'd send word, meet me. They have come. Here we are in verse 16. They go to Galilee. They go to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Verse 17, and when they saw him, notice this, they worshiped him. That is, they got down and they recognized him for who he is. He was dead, and now he is alive. He had claimed to be the son of God, and yet he had suffered a brutal, horrific crucifixion, an event which shook all of their faith, and yet here standing before them, here and now, as they are looking at him, there can be no question, there can be no doubt, he has conquered the grave. Death has no authority over him. It's not, well, I don't know, is he alive? Is he really there? They have a flesh and blood person standing there who is not a corpse. They have a flesh and blood person standing there who is Jesus talking to them, alive. He's still got the scars, proving that what they experienced was not a figment of their imagination. He truly was crucified, he truly did die, and he truly is alive forevermore, Death having no power over him. So the response is appropriate. Let us worship. Let us ascribe worth and glory and majesty to the one whom death cannot hold. That's the appropriate response. Now notice the next phrase. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But, here's a big but, some doubted this greek word it comes uh, it, it's the greek it's the greek word dystadzo. literally according to you, there's a couple of different dictionaries you can consult on this i'm reading from the theological dictionary of the new testament essentially means to waver to hesitate to be uncertain it is a figurative word indicating a person at a crossroads having to make a decision between one direction or the other and going back and forth in terms of which is the right direction to go. Now, this is mind-boggling to me, but if you really stop to think about it in terms of what Jesus is about to say to all of us here, it makes perfect sense. They have observed him go through the most horrific thing imaginable. He is now alive. He clearly has the power and the ability to overcome death. And has done so convincingly. They can reach out. They can touch him. He has in previous messages. And in previous teachings. Called his disciples to follow him. And in one particularly poignant passage. He has said. Let all those who would come after me. Deny themselves. And take up their cross. A clear call to self-denial. In the most extreme sense a total abandonment of all self-interest and all self-preservation for the sake of walking with Christ. So they see him, and he's on the far side of the grave now. He has gone through death, and he has come back from the grave. He clearly has power to bring us to life, to grant us eternal life. We worship him, but we're still on this side of the grave. And the call that we have heard him say many, many times is the call to follow. Well, we just watched him go into the grave. So if we follow this man, knowing now the gift he has in his power to bestow upon us, the gift of eternal life, it means that there is nothing that he cannot ask of us as we follow him. So if you're confronted with that, you're going to doubt. I do want to worship him. I do want to give my all to Christ. I do want to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. But in doing that, where will this take me? So they doubted. They hesitated. Uh, I'm not sure what the full potential ramifications of this are going to be. So even though I want to worship him, I'm holding something back. Now I wonder how, how, how many of you in this room does that describe? We've been walking with the Lord for a long time. We rejoiced At the forgiveness of our sins, we delighted in the initial blessings that He poured out upon our life. As we have followed Him, as we have obeyed Him, as we have been faithful to do many of the things that He calls us to do, to follow many of the instructions that He gives us in our lives, we have reaped untold blessings. And yet, I wonder for how many of us in this room we know what He's about to ask of us. We know that He's about to call us to go to that person in our workplace. Or to that kid at camp. To that individual in our family who is particularly unlovely. Who is especially difficult to love. And we know that following Jesus is going to require us hearing that call to go to that person. And to try to call them to faith in Christ. And to share with them the good news of salvation in the cross. To proclaim Jesus as king. And we don't want to do it because we know that doing that is going to lead to some uncomfortable conversations. For some of us, with some individuals, it might lead to outright ridicule and scorn. And for a precious few of us, it might lead to something even more. Hostility. Potentially violence. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting around with Christians in care groups or at Bible studies in which I've been sharing with them about evangelism and different things that people in our church are doing. And they share about somebody that they've been praying for. And I say, well, what has it been like sharing with that person? And the response is, well, there was never a good moment to share. There was never an open door to present the gospel, and I never had that comfortable, easy moment where I could invite them to church. You're doubting. Did they say hello? Did they make eye contact with you? If either of those two things happened, then you had an opportunity. Our Lord is about to make it very clear. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples. He doesn't leave room for ambiguity. There's no doubt about what his expectations of us are when we say things like there wasn't an opportunity, I didn't sense that the moment was right, I present to you that probably what's happening is that that spiritual, that old man, that sinful you is railing against the new you. You want to follow Christ, you want to worship him, but now you're doubting, now you're confronted against the hard, cold facts of sharing the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission, and you're not sure where that's going to take you, You suspect and you would be right to conclude that it will be uncomfortable and so you're doubting. So for a pastor, this passage is incredibly illuminative. When you were confronted, and let's be honest here, none of us are on the same level, spiritually speaking, as these 11 apostles. These guys had faith. It was rock solid. They'd been through the ringer, but they'd seen it all. They'd walked with Jesus through everything. Everything. And even here on this mountain in Galilee, they see him, they can touch him. There can be no doubt about the truth of Christianity. They have all the evidence, they have all the facts, they are eyewitnesses. And yet some of them doubt it. So if you are doubting, understand that they doubt it as well. You're in special company, which is to say that every Christian everywhere has had these doubts. So this passage is incredibly helpful for me as a pastor, because sometimes you have individuals who know they've had all the evidence, they've gone through all the arguments, they've done all the apologetics conferences, they know, they are convinced, they are absolutely persuaded by all of the data that Jesus is true, that something supernatural happened here on Golgotha 2,000 years ago, and something supernatural happened in the tomb three days later. They know it, it's a fact, and yet in the midst of all of the evidence, in the midst of all the ways in which they've even seen Jesus pouring out blessings in their life as they've come to him, they struggle with a pernicious doubt. I come to me sometimes, some of you, I'm still struggling with doubts, what do I do? And it's in this moment that I love exactly what Jesus does. When in doubt... When you are hesitating between two different choices, when you could go one direction or you could go another direction, but you're not sure what the consequences of this is, and you're not sure whether the pros and the benefits of that would be any better, when you're not sure what to do, when you are hesitating and in doubt, let Jesus just be king. Let Jesus just have the final authority. You notice he's Jesus. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He is fully aware of what's going on inside their hearts. And he doesn't say, okay, now I know that some of you guys are doubting. Come on, what's the problem? Let's go confess to me. Share it. I'm here. I'm alive. What's the deal? Do you need more evidence? Do you need more proof? He doesn't do any of that because at the end of the day, the greatest possible proof that there could ever have been is presented right here to their very eyes and they see it. It's not a question of evidence. It's not a question of proof. There's nothing that will do to strengthen their faith other than surrendering to his direction and accepting his authority to follow him and do what he says. As a pastoral example, this is great. Because sometimes you have people that come into your office and time and again they say, I'm still struggling. And he does nothing with these guys' doubts. That's not to say that we shouldn't address your doubts. It's not to say that you shouldn't investigate apologetics or look at some of these arguments for the resurrection. But at the end of the day, it's a mistake to think that empirical data can strengthen your faith. The only thing that can strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ is simply trusting Him and following Him. That's exactly what He does here. No mention of, hey, I know you guys are doubting. Look at what He says. Verse 18 Jesus came to them and He said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has it. He is in total control. A number of years ago in 1959 in the great state of Louisiana, there was a governor that was wanting to run for re-election as the governor of that great state. Uh, His fellow was Earl, his name was Earl, Earl Long, and uh, this fellow had successfully won re-election, but his political adversaries in the state legislature didn't like the fact that he had won re-election, and so they introduced legislation to place term limits on the office of governor. You can sit for this term, but no more, which of course he vetoed, because he was quite popular, though not in the legislature. And so they argued with him that it was improper for him to veto Term limits that they were placing upon him. The discussion went back and forth, and then somebody in the House legislature had the great idea, as he was ranting, and r- Governor Earl Long was ranting and raving at the microphone, somebody had the great idea, hey, let's call the state psych ward and have him committed as being mentally unstable. And that's exactly what they did. It was a rather curious sight to see men in white coats pull up in a 1950s ambulance, and to slap handcuffs on the governor of the state of Louisiana and to take him to Southeastern Medical Hospital where he was institutionalized. The governor swore up and down. He said, listen, you have no right to put me in this hospital. I am in perfectly sound mind. I am in perfect mental health, and you are totally overstepping your bounds. The director of the Southeastern Medical Hospital, Dr. Charles Belcher, knew that he was in a bit of a pickle, He was being ordered by the state legislature to put into custody the governor of the state of Louisiana. This was a state hospital receiving state funds to operate, so he thought he would better get some advice. So he called the director of state hospitals, an appointee of Governor Earl Longs, a fellow by the name of Dr. Jesse Bankston, who happened to come from the opposite political party as that of the governor. And he said, Dr. Bankston, should I continue to hold the governor in the hospital? And Dr. Bankston said, Yes, you should. He's clearly insane. He's a Democrat. (laughs) Governor Earl Long in the psych ward said, Let me out. They said, No, we won't. He said, What are my rights? You don't really have any rights, but you can make a phone call. He said, Give me a phone. So he called his staff. He said, do I have the power to order Dr. Charles Belcher, the director of Southeastern Medical Hospital, to, rem- to release me from this hospital? To which his staff said, no, technically your authority does not supersede medical authority. He said, can I fire him? He said, no, you can't do that. He said, what about the director of state hospitals, Dr. Jesse Bankston, can I fire him? Yeah, oh yeah, you can fire him. Okay, he's fired. Who can we replace him with? Technically, it doesn't matter. It's a state appointee. You can put anybody in charge. You're in charge, he said to his aide on the phone. Put a new medical doctor in charge of this hospital who will release me. And within one hour, he was walking out of that hospital. (laughs) And Dr. Charles Belcher and Dr. Jesse Bankston were out of work. You see, at the end of the day, he, the governor, had the authority. They tried to assert an authority over his, which didn't work. Jesus is saying here in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, all authority in heaven. He's claiming to be God Almighty, and he is He is saying he is in charge of the universe, all authority. In case you're wondering, there is no realm, there is no domain, there is no sphere over which Jesus is not sovereign. He says all authority in heaven and all authority on earth has been given to me. Then he says go, and I wonder how many of us in this room hear that call to go And unfortunately, like these poor doctors, we try to take Jesus and stick him in the psych ward and say, I wish I could go, but that's crazy what you're asking me to do. Jesus wants your faith in him to be strengthened. At the end of the day, all the evidence and all the data in the world does not strengthen your faith the same way as obedience and for all of our attempts to try and relegate Jesus' command to merely helpful advice, it would behoove you to be reminded that all authority in heaven and earth is his. He wants to bless you. He wants to strengthen your faith. He has the authority, and he calls you to go. Say, very well, preacher. What am I supposed to do? He gives directions verse 19 go therefore and make disciples we love to look at that first verse that first verb there and go and we think to ourselves we are called to go but the actual according to the grammar of the passage the main verb in this particular sentence is not so much the going the main verb in this sentence is the making disciples Jesus is calling us not simply to express the gospel, although that is the starting point, that is the foundation of what we are to do. We are to proclaim and express the great news, the incredible news that we have been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it is always to go beyond that. Rather than just simply expressing the good news, we are called to make disciples. And how do we do that? He lays out a process here. The beginning of discipleship is baptism. Following that, Observe everything that he has commanded. So it is comprehensive. But there is a plan. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He's previously just said that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Then he says, you have the authority to go and do this. And here is your warrant. Here is the signature upon your permission slip to do what he is about to tell you to do. Your warrant, your permission, your authority comes from the triune God. When Jesus says in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, he is saying that you have been given permission, you have been warranted, indeed commanded by all three as one. Three in one, the triune God. Jesus has just said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's claiming deity. He is claiming equality with God the Father. He is saying he has the authority to order you what to do. But in case that is not good enough, he grounds his authority within his union and unity within the Trinity. All three persons within the singular Godhead are giving us permission and authority to go and make disciples. Make disciples, baptizing them. Greek word baptizo literally means immerse. There's quite a bit of debate these days. Indeed, there's quite a bit of debate even within our fellowship around the practice of baptism as it relates to church membership. But every scholar across every denomination, regardless of the manner in which that particular denomination might practice baptism, every scholar agrees that the Greek word baptizo means immerse. As we think about the starting process of baptism and what it is to symbolize, it must be the start of the Christian life. We're signifying that we're dying to our old ways, that we are no longer going to be in charge of our lives. We're signifying that we are going to surrender our will to his will and the life that we are now going to live, we're going to live by His command and by His authority. So baptism, however it is practiced, needs to be understood as a commitment that you are dying to yourself and you are trusting Christ to raise you to new life and you are committing to following Him. You are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and then you are to be taught to observe all that I Have commanded you. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, Do all the things that I did. You notice he also doesn't say, Believe all the things that I believe. He encompasses both in this expression. The word observe is to be mindful of, to pay attention to. It is indeed doing the things that Jesus would have you to do. But observance can be simply to look and to see and to receive by eyesight it could obviously encompass as well the same beliefs that Jesus is teaching. It isn't just a matter of what you do, but it's a matter of what you think. Our lives, both physically as well as mentally, how we live in the day-to-day, but also what we choose to think about and meditate night by night, are totally under his domain. If you are a follower of Christ, He says, you are to observe all that I command. All of it. And following this is that precious promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sometimes individuals say, I don't know enough to tell people about Jesus. Pastor, I'd really like to be faithful to the Great Commission, but I'm not sure that I am able to share the gospel with people around me. Not because I don't want to, I do, but because I simply don't know enough. I need more training. I need more education. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, however long you have been walking with Christ, you do know enough to begin fulfilling the Great Commission. I said, no, pastor, I just told you, I need more education. I need more knowledge. If you don't know enough to tell someone about Jesus and how to become a follower of Christ, then how do you know that you are a follower of Christ? If your argument is true that you don't know enough, then maybe you really don't know enough. If your argument is valid that you don't understand the gospel and you don't understand the basics of what Jesus did for you on the cross, maybe you are not saved. Of course, we know that's not the truth of it. Indeed, you love the Lord, which means having walked with him, you do know enough to tell someone else what it means to walk with the Lord. It's not a matter of knowing enough. It's not a matter of needing more evidence. It's not a matter of needing more education. As we look at the context of this passage, these guys had it all. And the spiritual condition that they struggled with was not needing more data. It was simply just needing to trust Jesus. A number of years ago, when I was discharged from the United States Marine Corps, I had just been discharged. I was on my way home, having served. On, it was an honorable discharge. Some of you are looking at me like, "Ah." Yeah. it was honorable, it was honorable, but I was, it, my time was up. My, my tour of duty was over. And I was on the beach. at San on Onofre, California, getting ready. The bus that was taking me back to Texas was leaving the, in two days, and so I was enjoying a little bit of R&R, sitting on that beautiful California coast, soaking up the sun. And I looked down the beach, and there was a kid making his way down the beach. He had a surfboard under one hand, under one arm, and a Bible under the other. And he was going down the beach, and he was uh, talking to people. And I noticed at one point he stuck his surfboard in the sand, and he started to talk about the surfboard, and he started. there was a bit of back and forth, and I was wondering what he was doing. And then at another point, he'd sit there, and he'd gesture to his Bible, and he'd flip it open, and he'd start to talk, and I'd look at the people sitting on the sand as he was talking to them. Couldn't quite hear what they were saying with the wind and the surf, the crashing waves. You couldn't hear anything. Eventually, they would start to get animated. The fellow sitting on the sand would start to shake his head. He'd kind of shrug his shoulders and sort of make the universal apologetic, please don't hurt me sign, you know. And then he'd pick up his surfboard and he'd walk on down to the next next people on the beach. I watched him for two hours doing this until he finally got to me. As he pulled up, he looked like he'd been browbeaten, he looked like he'd had a rough go of it, but it was clear that he was trying to share his faith with those people on the beach. And So I was curious to see what he would say to me. And he came up and he said, hey, how's it going? I said, good, how's it going? He said, good. In my head I thought, liar. (laughs) He said, "Uh, do you surf? I said, No. He said, would you like to learn? I've got my surfboard here. I said, no. He said, what brings you out to the beach today? I said, oh, I'm just soaking up some sun. I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how he's going to segue this into the gospel because I know he's trying. He says, you know, um, I'm a Christian. And he says, uh, I know you might think that this is going to be an interruption to your day. But what I have to say it's probably the most important thing you will ever hear. And that's exactly word for word what he said. It is probably the most important thing you'll ever hear. And I heard him say that, and I immediately begin to pick. And, oh, probably. It's definitely the most important thing anybody needs to hear. And, you know, you begin to criticize. So I say, oh, yeah? What's that? And he begins to walk me through the Roman road. He so let me tell you about Jesus. Greatest person who's ever lived, who has forgiven me of all my sins. And what followed was some sort of a hodgepodge. I'm not entirely sure of his exact presentation. He clearly had done some Ray Comfort, Way of the Master. He had a little bit of that going for him. He had a little bit of the Roman's Road going for him. I was also able to identify an old Southern Baptist, Mark New Testament approach that he was he was utilizing. So he would clearly brought together a couple of different methods and he crafted something that was unique to him. And he was presenting it all to me. And I sat there and I listened and I went through the, the whole thing with him. And at the end he said, so Would you like to pray to receive Jesus? I've been a Christian since I was seven. I prayed to receive Christ and been baptized when I was seven years old. But I felt like he needed a little bit of encouragement, so I lied. I said, yes, I would love to pray to receive Jesus. And so he led me through the prayer, said amen. He said, how do you feel? I said, man, it's the greatest news I ever heard. And he got all excited. He's like, would you like to come with me to church on Sunday? I said, ah, you know what? I'm shipping out and I'm going to Texas. He says, that's okay. Give me your number and uh, I will do some research on the internet and I'll try to find a good church for you to go to in Texas. I said, brother, you are an amazing blessing to me. I said, I gotta confess something to you. He says, what's that? I said, well, he says, let me guess. You're a Christian pretending to be an unbeliever just to encourage me, aren't you? (laughs) And I say, yeah, I, d- I am, actually. That's amazing. How did you know that? He says, You're the fifth Christian I've witnessed to this morning on this beach. And he didn't mean that in any kind of a critical or negative way. But when he said it, the Spirit of God convicted me. You mean to tell me there are six of us brothers on this beach? And there's only one of us that has the courage to get up and tell other people about Jesus. I didn't say that to him because I was afraid he'd make me get up and go start telling people about Jesus. (laughs) So I just kind of put that in the back of my mind, but the, the Lord started to work in my heart. He and I traded phone numbers. We're still friends to this day. And he is still very active in telling people about the Lord. He's encountered all kinds of craziness on the beach of California. If you know anything about California, you can imagine. It's not exactly the most spiritually receptive place on earth. But nowhere is, really. And he's got all kinds of stories of ways in which he has seen the Lord work miraculously. He's got stories of times in which he was convinced he was going to get beaten up by drunken surfers. He's got stories of times in which he was invited back to crack houses with people who wanted him to share his cockamamie story with other drug addicts. He's got stories of people coming to faith. He's got stories of people getting saved. This is in 2004, and since 2004, he has personally witnessed to and seen come to legitimate saving faith over 30 individuals on the beaches of California. I asked him one time, how many people have said no? He said thousands, maybe even tens of thousands. I said, doesn't that ever make you want to stop? He said, I always want to stop, every day. But then you get that one. He said, it's the sweetest thing you've ever known. He said to me, Josh, you know in Matthew 28, I said, yeah, it says the very last verse in the book Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, There is no more sure and absolute experience of the presence of the Lord in your life than in that moment when he was blessed to choose you to bring someone else to salvation. Said it's like sunshine after a long winter. And that particularly resonated to me living here in Kamloops and him living there in California. I'm not sure what he means by winter. But I know what it means. We want Jesus in our life. We want to know that he's with us. We want to know that he is present. We want our faith in him to be strengthened, and yet Too often, we want to do things our way. We want to go down our own path. If you really want to be with the Lord and be close to Him, my prayer for you is that you would follow Him into a daily discipline of personal evangelism. I pray He is working in your heart today to bring about that conviction. Let us close this time in Matthew thanking God for what he has done. Father, we praise you and we adore you. We know, God, that there was no hesitation. There was no doubt on your part when it came to saving us, your people. You didn't waver back and forth between a series of possibilities contemplating the pain and the anguish and the suffering that you would experience. When it came time to saving your people, there was not a doubt in your mind. There was not a hesitation on your part. You came, you saved, and in the fullness of time, you brought us into your family, and we praise you and we thank you for that. God, as we come to this end of this particular gospel, as we have spent so many years now, Lord, thinking about and reflecting on what you say to us in your word, I pray, God, that you would convict us that as we have received this amazing grace, we would feel constrained. We would have to share it with others. God, I pray that if there are any here today who are living in fear, who are struggling with their faith, who are doubting your sovereignty and your goodness, I pray, God, that you would call them to an enthusiastic proclamation of your glory. We ask that you would do that in our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.